This message was presented at the GYC conference by many or by few in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Good morning. Yes, can you hear me okay? I can't speak as loud or sing as loud as Shana, but uh, I, I'm glad I got this mic. So um, I'm glad that you guys, are, you guys are here today. I know that God has a very special blessing in store for us. Amen. Amen, amen. You know, I like to start off with just a, a time of thanksgiving. You know why? Because the Bible says, enter into his what? Gates, Gates with what? Thanksgiving in where? In your hearts, right? That when we come into the presence of God, regardless of why we're going there, we need to come with thanksgiving in our hearts. Do you know the shortest verse in the Bible? Anybody know? Jesus. Wrong. In John chapter 11, in the English translation, it is Jesus wept. But if you go to the Greek, there's actually a verse shorter than Jesus wept. It's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where Jesus wept is actually two words and 16 letters. This word, verse is two words and 14 letters. It is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, rejoice always. Amen. We have much to be thankful for, right? Why don't we bow our heads for another word of prayer, then we're going to jump into this message right away. Father in heaven, we just thank you again for this special time. We pray and ask that you would speak to us, that you would enlighten us, that you would expand our understanding of the providences of God. For this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, Is it cooling off in here? We tried to turn on the air conditioner. It's hot. It's like hot as India in here. Oh, um. So I don't know if somebody's in the back. Maybe, Shana, you can connect with somebody. You can just blast the air. So it's just, it's warm in here. All right. So I uh, hope you guys appreciated that song, Father Abraham. I was not actually born and raised a Christian. I come from a Hindu and Sikh background. We're from the Radha Swami sect. And in the year 2000, I became a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. When I became a Seventh-day Adventist Christian... Uh, the Seventh-day Adventist Church was the first church I went to, and when I was driving to church for one of the first times, I turned on the radio and I thought to myself, wait a minute, it's the Sabbath, I need to listen to something that is Christian. So I turned to the Christian station, and they were playing kids' songs, and no joke, the very first kids' song I have ever heard, praise song, was Father Abraham. (laughs) Father Abraham. In fact, the brother who brought me to the Lord, his name was Abraham. And so that name means a lot to me. You know, it's really interesting. When you study out the scriptures, it's really remarkable. When you're opening up the Bible, the Bible seems to be on this trajectory, this fast-moving current. You read Genesis chapter 1, it's creation. Genesis chapter 2, God's favorite part of creation. Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man. And then it gets into the multiplication of man, eventually gets to the flood. Then it gets to the Tower of Babel. And as you're reading chapter by chapter, it's like the Bible is fast forwarding, trying to get you somewhere. And then all of a sudden, it stops in Genesis chapter 12. And for about 12 chapters, you learn about the day-to-day existence of a man named Abraham. Almost as if the spirit through the scripture is saying, hey, Hurry up, let's get through Genesis, let's get to a very important part of the Bible, and that is the life of who? Abraham. And when you study out the scriptures from the Old Testament to the New Testament, 
it's really powerful because you learn so much about, about this man named Abraham. The Bible tells us this in Genesis chapter 22, these remarkable words that God spoke to Abraham. Your descendants shall be as the stars of the what? Heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Can you imagine that very moment where Abraham went outside? He looked upon the stars. By the way, do you know how many stars you can see on a clear night? Researchers have actually looked at this. They say anywhere from 2,000 stars to 10,000 stars can be visible to the eye on a clear night. Do you know how many stars there are suggested that are actually in our universe? It's estimated 100 billion stars are in our universe. So Abraham saw stars that he could see, but there were more stars than that. So Abraham, as he looked out into the sky, saw these beautiful stars, saw this uh, sort of numerous, uh, just abundance of stars, and God spoke to him and said, so shall your descendants be. And Abraham was blessed to be a blessing to this world. Now, let's go to this. We live on a planet with a population of 7.8 billion people. The vast majority, not Christian. And the majority of those who are labeled as such, subscribe to beliefs not in harmony with the trajectory of scripture, i.e. eternal hellfire, right? So the question is then, in which way does God work to save the nations with such a missional dilemma? Dilemma. With the omnipotent being who obviously loves every human being, how are Adventists supposed to understand the divine care with unreached people groups? Does God work with them? Would God answer the prayers of sincere, God-fearing Hindus, Buddhists, and Muslims? You look in the world today, and our world is full of lots of people. And these people fall into various categories, religious categories. Take a good look at this. Christianity, they're considered... 2.4 billion Christians in the world, and that also includes Catholics as well in that category. Muslims, 1.9 billion. Hindus, 1.15 billion. Buddhists, 521 million. Sikhs, 30 million. And you look at all the religious groups out there. It is so numerous. Has anybody here ever been outside the United States before? Okay, most of us, right? Anybody here ever been to a third world country before? What's considered a third world country? Anybody ever been to India? A few. You are blessed of the Lord. <laughs> Anybody ever been to Thailand? Place of Thailand? Okay. Uh, Cambodia? Okay. Anybody been to Europe? Okay. I, okay. England? It's part of Europe? Well, technically, until January 31st. Anyways, let's keep going. And so you've got the Baha'i faith, you've got Jains, you've got universalism. And it's remarkable, right? You have like all these people groups, so just very religious, very sincere. And inevitable question comes up is, how in the world does God work with such people groups? Especially in areas where there are very little to no Christians. And by the way, we're not just Christians, but Seventh-day Adventist influence. How are we supposed to understand the divine care with sort of a, a, a very strange dynamic with our planet. You know, when I went to Pakistan, I went there to go speak at the Pakistan Adventist Seminary there. And 
India and Pakistan, as you know, used to be one country, right? When the English left, uh, a lot of the Muslims were fearful that when the English left, that the Hindus would take over and oppress them. And so fear was introduced. The Muslims wanted their own country. They began to flee towards the West. And a division took place in India. They call it the Great Partition. And Muslims formed their own country at a part of India. The word Pakistan means pure. 95% of the country is actually Muslim. And the other 5% are just all across the spectrum. It's really remarkable. When I went to India, that was actually the place my dad was born before the partition took place. When the partition took place, the Muslims fled to the east and a lot of the Sikhs and the Hindus had to go towards the west. My dad and his family were part of the people that had to leave the Punjab part of Pakistan and go to the Punjab part of India. And uh, it was really interesting. When I went to Pakistan to speak, uh, my guide took me to the place of the birthplace of Sikhism, which was in Pakistan, an area called Fahaslabad. I went there with a country that had 95% Muslims. Here was a Sikh family still renovating the, uh, one of the only Sikh temples in all of Pakistan, the birthplace of Sikhism, right then and there. They opened the door, they let us in, and uh, the Sikh guru began to take us around, show us the beautiful things that were in this temple. And then at the end of it, he said something to us. He said, hey, would you like some food? And we're like, hey, you know, we're okay. And he's like, would you like some chai tea? And we're like, hey, it's okay. You got some water? They gave us some water. And then he said something to us I never forgot. He said this, in my culture, we have this belief. Where there is no food, there is no temple. And essentially what he was implying was, that uh, people are welcome to come to seek temples and eat food because they consider it part of the worship experience. Let me tell you something. This man was very sincere in his faith. This is a man who was living in a country with 95% Muslims. He was in a Sikh temple. And Sikhs, by the way, didn't get the best treatment in that area. And yet, he was willing to live for his faith and serve all those that were willing to go into the temple. When we left that place, I thought to myself, man, here is a God-fearing Sikh man. He's very sincere in his religious faith. You look all over the world, and you probably have encountered many people who are sincere in their religious faith, whether they be Buddhists, whether they be Jews, whether they be Hindus, whether they be Sikhs. All across the spectrum, there are very sincere, God-fearing people. Can you say amen to that? In fact, the Revelation 18 call, God says, come out of Babylon, what? My people. Where is the majority of his people found? They're found in Babylon. In other words, God has A, a visible church, and B, invisible church. And what he is trying to do is lead people out of the invisible church and into the visible church. Let's continue with this. You might have walked by a temple and you might have seen a man very sincerely praying, pleading with his God, asking that his God or gods would bless him. You might have, you know, gone by a mosque and perhaps the door was open and there you saw a Muslim man praying very sincerely, devoutly to his God. Right? You look all over the world, there are people passionately praying 
to a higher power for deliverance and help. It's remarkable. You study out the book of Jonah. You know what's so powerful about the book of Jonah? Is that there are about 25 to 30 references from the book of Genesis in the book of Jonah. Well, what do you mean by that, Pastor Nell? It's interesting. When you study out the very first part of Genesis, what do you learn about? God's love for humans and animals. What do you learn about next, right? You learn about a snake in a tree. What do you learn about next? You learn about a flood in which the righteous are on top of the water and the wicked are where? At the bottom of the water. Then what do you learn about? A man who is called out of the east. When you read the book of Jonah, you are introduced to a reversal of that trajectory. What do you mean by that? The Bible tells us about Jonah who was called to go into the east, but he decides to flee to the west. So what happens next? A a great flood, or so he was thrown into the ocean, and what happens? A reversal takes place. It was the righteous that were under the water, and it was the wicked or the lost that were on top of the water. Then what are you introduced to? You were introduced to a worm in a tree. And then what happens at the very end of Jonah? God talks about his love, not only for humans, but for animals. Now, that's very intentional. Why are you seeing this reversal in the book of Jonah? Because as Jonah was running from his calling, he was, in effect, reversing the Abrahamic call upon this world. Are you tracking with me? This is powerful stuff when you begin to realize it. This reversal in the sequence happening in the book of Jonah is what takes place when his people aren't doing the work that they are called to do. Let's continue with this. True thing, it happened to me a few months ago. So I was driving back one Sabbath. I had preached. I felt the Holy Spirit bless. And I get this phone call. And it was from my family, and they said to me, they said, hey, something just happened to Thaji, and that is the word for uncle. I said, well, what's happened? They said, he just died in the hospital. Now, let me tell you about this man. This is a man who, when I was younger, would call us over to his house, and he would have these religious services, or what's called satsang at his house. He was the brother that was most influential and close to my dad. He actually raised one of my sisters. He was somebody that spent hours in meditation, You go into his house, there was not a single idol in his house. He was somebody that believed in sort of this uh, uh, vague picture of a one God. And he was not somebody who drank. He was not somebody who smoked. In fact, the religious background I come from, because of the influences that came through him and others, I did not grow up smoking. I did not grow up drinking. We were vegetarians. And we were taught to develop the inner spirituality that exists. We had a pantheistic picture of God. You know, when you go to Sabbath school, you paint a picture of, when you're about 10 years old, of maybe uh, John the Baptist, right? You color a little picture. Well, I grew up being given coloring pictures of giant trees and rocks. And we would color them. And at the caption at the very end would say, God is in the rock. God is in the tree. A very pantheistic notion. But this man was somebody who was actually supportive of me when I became a Christian. He was not somebody that said, hey, what are you doing? It's wrong. He kept his mouth quiet. He was somebody that was very religious. You go into his house, there was just sort of this library of spiritual literature, including a Bible that was there. 
Now, I had been praying for my family and I had been praying for him. And I get the call as I'm driving home that he just died. They took him to the hospital. He had a heart attack and passed away. And I remember when I heard those words, I began to choke up. I began to cry. And I did the best I could to just uh, uh, drive. I pulled over. And the phrase that kept coming through my mind, it was just sort of this emotional uh, thing that was just swelling to the surface. I began to utter out. I said, Lord, where is the Savior of these people? Is there not a Savior for these kinds of people? Isn't there a God who listens to them and has provided atonement for them? Where is the light that shines upon them? And I kept just saying the words, where is their Savior? Where is their Savior? And over and over again, I just could not uh, drive any further. I had to stop. I had to pray and ask, surrender at that very moment. Something happened. The very next day, before I was to take off and go back down to Southern California, go visit my family participate in the funeral, I started reading something in the spirit of prophecy I'd never read before. I mean, this is mind-blowing right now. I'm about to share something with you. It's so amazing. Ellen White speaking here in the chapter, Patriarchs and Prophets called, get this, Hope for the Heathen. Okay, what does it say? Notice this. Heaven's plan of salvation is, what's that next word? What's the word broad mean? Anybody know? Wide. Okay, all right, let's keep going. Enough to embrace the whole world. Amen. And God will not permit any soul to be disappointed. Notice this. Who is sincere in his longing for something higher and nobler than anything the world can offer. Even though he himself may not articulate what that higher thing is. Let's continue with this. This is mind-blowing. Constantly he is sending his angels to those who, while surrounded by circumstances, the most discouraging. Here's this next phrase. The mind-blowing phrase right here. Pray in faith for some power higher than themselves to take possession of them and bring deliverance and peace. Are you getting what is being said here? This is Ellen White here. She is talking about heathen people here. She is talking about people that have multiple gods, people that are New Agers, people that are Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims. When sincerely they are praying to a higher power, though they may not understand who or what that higher prayer is, if their heart is right and honest, she says, God will send his angels to them. Let's continue with this. In various ways, God will reveal himself to them and will place them in touch with providences that will establish their confidence in one who has given himself a ransom for all. Now let me articulate this as best as I could. I'm going to say it probably once or twice, and that is this. Don't get me wrong on this. God is more willing and able to answer the prayers of Hindus, Muslims, and Buddhists more than he is Muslim prayers, Hindu prayers, and Buddhist prayers. Let me say that one more time. God is more willing to answer the heartfelt prayers of Hindus, Buddhists, and Muslims more than he is Muslim prayers, Hindu prayers, and Buddhist prayers. In fact, when you study out the scripture, do you want to know one of the most powerful form of prayer in scripture? Like, what is that, Pastor Now, The prayer of groaning. Groaning? You know, when you read the book of Exodus, the Bible says the children of Israel groaned. 
and the Lord heard them. The Bible tells us in the gospel, Jesus groaned within his spirit. In fact, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit makes intercession with the, for us with what? Groanings that cannot be uttered. Some of the most powerful prayers in the Bible are prayers that are not articulated by word or written down. It is the prayer that comes when the heart is overwhelmed with the circumstances and cries out for deliverance and help to heaven. Can you say amen to that? That is what is so powerful, is that when there are sincere, honest, God-fearing people praying, For help and deliverance, the Lord does not turn his ear away from them. And that is powerful, and it helps us sort of expand our great understanding. You know, one of the things I love about Ellen White, anybody here love Ellen White here? Ellen White is Ellen Wright, amen? (laughs) And uh, when you're studying out some of her writings, she'll be talking about completely a different subject, but as you're reading whatever she's writing, all of a sudden she'll just sort of drop this gem. And as you look at that gem, you're just like, oh, this is amazing. This is mind-blowing. I have another good friend. His name is Brian Simmons. He's a pastor in Oregon. Uh, the town is boring. He actually pastors the boring church. No joke. And uh, we'll talk Friday nights, and we'll just talk about some of the things God showed us. And we'll always just hone in on these gems that are just embedded in the spirit of prophecy, that are just embedded in Scripture. As it's talking about completely a different subject, it sort of drops these beautiful gems. And if you're paying attention to the bush that's on fire, you'll see what God is trying to say. Amen? Amen. You know, one of the things I appreciate about apologetics, the word apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia. And it means a defense or a reason for the things that you believe in. Apologetics is amazing because it takes a step back and says, what is the bigger picture here? And the great thing about being a Seventh-day Adventist is that the foundation is really deep. And because the foundation is very deep, it is why the picture of God can continually expand, guided by the Holy Spirit. Friends, I want you to know something. God is big enough to deal with this whole world. Amen? He knows how to deal with all the unreached people groups as well. You look at powerful uh, stories in Scripture of how individuals are crying out for help and God hears them. So how do we understand this from a scriptural standpoint? Notice what the Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 9. This was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. No man is left without a witness in some kind of perspective or picture of God is given to them. No man is left without a witness. Romans chapter 1 verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. There's a book you need to get. It's by a man by the name of Don Richardson. He wrote this book of this experience. It's called Peace Child. Anybody ever heard that book before? Really interesting about how he worked with these headhunters and cannibals and how he was able to broker peace based upon something that took place in that culture where the son of a chieftain is given to the member of another tribe. And he was able to use that what he called religious analogy to help talk about the gospel. Well, he has another book. You need to get it. It's called Eternity in Their Hearts, where he describes many of these religious analogies that exist in different kinds of faiths and culture. One of them, he said, in the uh, Mayan culture there was actually a period in which they became monotheistic. Well, how do we know that? 
Because one of the artifacts that was discovered around Mayan ruins, there is a hymn of a king who began to reason in the hymn about the sun. I'm talking about the earthly sun that comes up and down. And he said the earthly sun is stuck in this pattern. But he said if this earthly sun is God, why can he not break out of this pattern? And he began to reason in the hymn that there must be another God or the one true God who is Lord of heaven and earth. And for a period of time, the Mayan culture actually became monotheistic simply because this king began to reason on what he was seeing in nature. God has not left his people without a witness. Can you say amen to this? Notice what it says in Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 15. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts, either now accusing or now defending them. They say, wait a minute, Pastor, now... Are we talking about universalism? Now, what's universalism? Universalism is this idea that every person, regardless of their choice, regardless of the religious background, regardless of the things they believe in, every single person is going to go to heaven one day regardless. Perhaps you might have been to a uh, funeral. And it might have been a funeral of someone who you knew was like, and you're not trying to judge, but you know, like that person did not live a Christian life. Right? And I've done lots of funerals when I was pastoring. I remember um, I had to deal uh, one of these. I actually gained a rapport with some, some of the local thugs. And uh, they, just, they, they just looked up to me. And they came to the church and they said, Hey, pastor, they said, one of our bros just got shot in a drive-by. Can you do this funeral? I was like, why not? And so we had this funeral. And I remember during the funeral, during the sharing time, there's, I mean, like, the elders got, or the deacons got upset because they were like leaving alcohol in the lobby. But what happened is, during the, during the actual uh, funeral service, during the sharing time, they were like, hey, we're just gonna, I wanna pour out some alcohol for my buddy. And they were just like doing all sorts of things. And I thought to myself, man, how do you, how do you, how do you do a funeral message for something like this, right? How do you do this, right? And I've done a number of funerals, and God has shown me sort of a perspective or angle to sort of deal with those kinds of circumstances. But universalism is this idea, yeah, no matter how that person lived, no matter what their church was, no matter what their belief was, oh, they're all going to get to heaven. Friends, that teaching is not biblical. And I'm going to show you why. Number one, universalism removes freedom of choice. If God forced everybody into heaven regardless of their choice, he would not be saving a someone, he'd be saving a something. God is not interested in saving property. He is interested in saving people. Amen? Amen. God does not force people into heaven. Number two, universalism removes the justice of God. What do you mean by that? Because there are men that have done great wickedness regardless of the light that was given to them. People like Nero all the way to Hitler. Individuals who who in spite of all the things that were happening, violated their conscience over and over again and reaped destruction, punishment, death, and sin upon this world with no regret or repentance. And if we just say, oh, everybody just gets to heaven, friends, I want you to understand, that means there is no justice in this world. And all the people who have cried out from the blood of Abel to the prophets, who have cried out for justice, none of that will happen because of this 
falsehood of this idea called universalism. It does not exist. It is not biblical. And number three, universalism actually diminishes the beliefs of others. What is that all about? That means that when you actually study out the fates of different people, you study out Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism, Jainism, uh, uh, you know, the Jewish faith, the Catholic faith, the Christian faith, the Adventist, Adventist faith, the idea that everyone gets to heaven actually is an effrontery to these other religious beliefs because they have different concepts of heaven, they have different concepts of, of the method, they have different concepts of salvation. And so for somebody just to come into the argument, oh, everyone's just getting to heaven, wait a minute, you're actually um, not consistent with what even these other people believe about their faith. So actually, it's an effrontery to them, it's an offense to them because if you're actually understanding what they believe in, they don't actually believe that. So this idea of universalism actually is very um, an offense to many different cultures and religious beliefs. Number four, universalism renders the gospel moot. In other words, if everyone gets to heaven, there's no purpose for Jesus to have died on this planet. So this idea of universalism is not a biblical teaching. But when you begin to understand the bigger picture, more accurate picture of God and how he works with unreached people groups and how he works with every single individual regardless of their circumstance, circumstances and spiritual background, you begin to see a picture of a God who is just, who is fair and bends his ear to the cry of every human being. Can you say amen to that? So how do we understand this from a philosophical standpoint? The human messenger represents what might be called God's modus operandi. His normal method of operation. In other words, God is sending witnesses out to the entire world. And through these witnesses, God hopes to bring others to the faith. Remember, friends, it's not shepherd that produce sheep. It's sheep that produce sheep. Amen? But notice this. But if through indolence, no human agent reaches a poor soul struggling for light in, de in a deprived area of the world, God in his infinite mercy has in reserve as a last resort a modus vivendi a special arrangement to bypass an otherwise fatal impediment. So what is that? That means when God's people, his church, his family, fails to bring the gospel to the world, God reverts to a modus vivendi in which he judges man based upon the light he has given to them. Well, how else do we understand that? You look at the story of the wise men. Anybody here love the story of the wise men? I love the story of the wise men. And the story of the wise men is a group of people, most likely from Persia, modern-day Iran. And they traveled to uh, Israel looking for the newborn king. All they saw was a star, and they got to Jerusalem. Do you know what happened? The people were not interested in helping them out. The only individual that actually began to help them out, though had wrong motives, was who? Yeah, wily King Herod, right? And these people, through the guidance of God and through providences that existed around them, were able to find the Messiah. You see, when God's messengers fail, God has something else in which he uses providences and nature and the light and the Holy Spirit. You say, wait a minute, can you give me a little bit more information to back that up? Absolutely. Among the heathen are those who worship God ignorantly. Those to whom light is never brought by human instrumentality. In other words, the modus operandi has failed. So what happens next? Yet they will, what's that next word? Not perish, 
Though ignorant of the written law of God, they have heard his voice speaking to them in where? Nature. And have done the things that the law required. Their works are evidence that the Holy Spirit has touched their hearts and they are recognized as the children of God. By the way, you need to read one of the most famous psalms in scripture. I can't remember the actual where it's located. But it starts off like this. Where the psalmist is saying, I have heard about the registration in heaven. You know what I'm talking about? And then as he's leaning in, he hears people from Babylon. He hears people from the land of the Philistine. He hears people from Rahab. And he's hearing about these nations. The reason why it's a great marvel is because these are pagan nations. These are pagan nations. Yet apparently there were sincere God-fearing people within those pagan nations in which they're in heaven. Let's continue reading the rest of this. Their works are evidence that the Holy Spirit has touched their hearts and they are recognized as the children of God. Well, how does God work then if the modus operandi fails, if human agents fail? The angels of heaven are what? Sent forth to minister to those who shall be heirs of salvation. We know not who they are, but angels of heaven are passing throughout the length and breadth of earth, seeking to win the hearts of men to Christ. Not one is neglected or passed by God. God is no respecter of persons, and he has an equal care for all souls that he has created. Can you say amen to that? In fact, let me just add a little bit more to this, and I feel like God really showed me this as I was studying this subject out. You do know who Abraham's other son was, right? Remember his name? Ishmael, Ishmael, right? Do you know who gave him the name Ishmael? It was God. Ishmael became the head of several different kinds of pagan nations. Some of the remnants are still there today. Do you know the name Ishmael, what it means? God hears. That's sort of of a strange name. Why would God give the name Ishmael to a man who would become the father of several different pagan nations? Because they were not left without a witness. And when in their hearts they cried out for help to a power higher than themselves, they recognized there was no help within themselves. God heard. Can you say amen to that? What a beautiful picture of God, right? What a beautiful picture of God. A God who works all over the world. He's a God who uses his agents ideally for two reasons. Obviously, number one, for contributing to the salvation or potential salvation of another individual. But the other reason is that they themselves may grow as they are witnessing. That is why the giving of the gospel is so important, though not dependent upon the human agent. God himself is working all over the world, and he is a God who can be trusted. Right? So what do we understand from this? How in the world did Abraham reach the heathen nations that were around him? It's not like he was surrounded by Jewish nations. You know why? There wasn't any Jews. He was considered the first Hebrew, right? So it's not like he could just go, I'm going to go visit the other Jewish synagogue over there. He was surrounded by pagan nations. In fact, when you actually read the book of Genesis, specifically the areas around uh, Abraham, when he gets into the land, do you know who else is in the land right then and there? 
Canaanites. You go a little bit further as the journey of Abraham continues. You know what the Bible says next? Not just the Canaanites, but the Prezites were there. When you continue to read the story of Abraham, you find out that as he's called to the land, it seems that pagan nations are growing and multiplying in the land of Canaan during his time that he was there. Abraham was starting to understand something. That the land that God was leading him to was not a physical land, but a spiritual land in which all were invited to be part of Abraham's tribe. Amen? That's why Paul says, those who are of faith are of Abraham's children. So how did Abraham reach out to people like that? I know people come to me and they say, Pastor Nell, they said, hey, I got this Hindu family, I got this Sikh family living next door. How do I reach out to them? And I said, well, how would she reach out to anybody else? Be a friend. Well, that's a good start, right? Well, let's look at what Abraham did. Number one, he possessed a well-ordered household. Do you know a well-ordered household, right, is a powerful argument for Christianity, right? Everyone in Abraham's tribe, his household, loved God. They feared God, though not all perfect. They had respect. And this was something that was visibly seen by many different cultural groups around Abraham. Number two, his business practices were honest. Can you say amen to that? Uh, Let me say it one more time. His business practices were honest. Right? Abraham, when he was dealing with the heathen, was somebody who was honest to a T. He was not somebody that was like, wait a minute, let me get a little extra deal here. Right? Uh, Let me me just, uh, you know, uh, take a little bit more money. Let me just raise the price here. No, no, no. Abraham was completely honest. And people recognized it, and they recognized the blessing of God was upon Abraham. What else? He was not known for self-aggrandizement. Do you know when you read the story of Sodom? By the way, that's going to be session number three. When Sodom is freed first by Abraham's sword, the king of Sodom says, take whatever you want. Do you know what Abraham said? He said, I will not take a shoelace of this, lest somebody says they blessed Abraham. And the world, the nations around him recognize, here is a man that loves his God and is not tempted by the world. You know, and this is very important because as we work with others, sometimes, especially if you're someone in the entrepreneurial world, if your hearts aren't open to the Spirit of God, we always like just to get a little bit more, you know. When I was younger, I was somebody that, you know, I don't know if it's sort of this natural Indian thing. We're all salesmen, okay. And... uh, Obviously, I'm generalizing. I can because I'm Indian and it's not offensive. And uh, I'm always like, I'm like, how do I make an extra buck here? How can I make an extra deal here? But I began to learn something when I became a Christian that God was not pleased when I was doing that. Because it left an impression upon the other person. The only interest I had in them was their money. Now, I understand there are business practices and you have to make money. No question about that. And what's fair is fair. But here's the thing. I think people can recognize when some things are just not fair. Right? And we need to be mindful of that. What else? He made friendships and alliances. Do you know he made friends with the three brothers that were Amorites? Right? In fact, when they went to war to go rescue Lot, those brothers gathered their men and they joined in. You know, when I go into like a liquor store, right? And many times there are Sikhs or Hindus that are running liquor stores. The first thing I do many times is I go up to the counter and I said, hey, and I'll start introducing maybe like a Punjabi greeting or a Hindu greeting to them, uh, Hindi greeting to them. And they're like, oh, yeah, brother. And then they'll, they'll be like, and you know what they say to me? They're like, hey, go get a drink. 
go, go grab a water. And I, I said, no, no. They're like, no, no, go grab some orange juice. I'll grab some orange juice, and I get free orange juice. And that's not the purpose I'm doing it. I will try to sit and talk with them a little bit. And I've realized this, and it's very important. Sometimes as a Seventh-day Adventist, we are so insular, we're so isolated and contained that we don't know how to make friends with those that are outside the church. I mean, you know what's so amazing? Do you know David, some of David's most loyal men? Do you know who they were? Converted Philistines. When David was actually running from Jerusalem because his son Absalom was trying to take over Jerusalem, do you know it was Ittai the Gittai who actually was with him and said, we're going to follow you? Do you know who he was? He was the head of the Chetalites and Pethelites. Do you know who they were? They were Philistine tribes. And they were actually exiled. Ellen White says that they were converted to God. Do you know when they became converted? When David spent some time in Philistia. And they became the most loyal bodyguards, even serving until the time of King Solomon. Now, why would they make the, most, the best bodyguards? Because they had no interest in sort of the political direction of Israel. They were not actors in the political platform. So David could trust them as his... These are people who are Philistines. By the way, do you know Gittite? Do you know where that is from? Gath. Do you know who else is from Gath? David even killed their champion. But they were so loyal, they saw David's Christ-like demeanor, his loyalty, his friendship, and they said, look, man, we're going to serve you. We're going to be your friend. And when David was even running from his own people, these people were at his side. Isn't that powerful? Let's continue with this. He looked out for them. Well, how else did he look out for them? Because when the king of Sodom says to them, he says, take whatever you want. David says, I'm, Abraham says, I'm not going to take anything. But the three brothers who are Amorites, let them take their provisions. He looked out even for those who were not part of his tribe. And they picked up on that. What else? Abraham interceded for others. By the way, this is really remarkable. As I was studying out this very story where Abraham is actually interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah, when God shows up with two angels, the Bible says Abraham stood before them, right? He stood before them in a manner of service. When the two angels left, God lingered behind. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to reveal some stuff to you. And he says, Sodom is going to be destroyed. Abraham begins to intercede. And the Bible says something really interesting. And depending upon your translation, even the Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentary points this out, that the, the, the phraseology is actually, now God stood before Abraham. In other words, when God's blessing came upon Abraham to bless him with the son, Abraham was ready to serve. But when Abraham was interceding for those who did not know the Lord, God was ready to serve. Let's continue with this. He was definitely hospitable. Now let me tell you something. Abraham did not have American hospitality. Amen? Amen. He did not have American hospitality. American hospitality is this. You go visit someone's house and they keep the screen door locked and they try to talk to you from behind the screen door. Right? And when they invite you in, it's really awkward. You sit down and they're just, they're sitting down and they're just looking at you and just waiting for that moment to leave, right? But you go to someone who's Indian, right? You go to their house. I visited my uncle the other day. Came into the house. I just ate. I'm not going to eat any more food. But I knew what they were going to do. As soon as I sat down, they got the orange juice out. They got the water out. They tried to serve me chai. I didn't drink the chai. They bought this cookies out. And I'm like, I can't eat anymore. Let me tell you something. When I left that place, I left with a stomachache. But I left 
um, really receiving their hospitality. You, you might, this happens multiple times a week. When I go visit my mom down in Southern California, this is how I grew up. When people come by, even announced or unannounced, when they come by, they are seated on the couch and snacks or whatever is brought out and water and juice. It is super important that these people, whoever they are, feel that they are welcomed into their household. Let me tell you something. Have you ever had a Sikh man, a Buddhist man, a Muslim man, a Muslim family, Sikh family, Hindu family come to your house? And did you treat them with the kind of hospitality that they would just be like, this guy's a brother, this sister's a sister right here. In fact, when I was pastoring at the series church, I get this phone call from somebody in Fresno, and they said, Pastor Nell, Pastor Nell, there is this Sikh man has started coming to our church. I'm like, oh, really? And like, they're like, yeah. Like, can you say something? I'm like, I can't speak Punjabi fluently. I don't know how to speak. And like, can we bring him to church? And I'm like, I speak 90 miles an hour. He can't even understand me when I speak in slow English. How in the world is this going to take place? And like, we're just going to bring him like, okay, whatever. And they brought him to church, and there he is. Sikh man, turban and all. Sitting in the front row, I preached my heart out. I said, Lord, give me the gift of tongues. Give him the gift of understanding. When I was done with it, I asked him, I said, I, and I made a few words, and I said, do you understand what I was saying? He said, no. <laughs> I said, okay. I said, why don't you stay for lunch? And his two friends, his two Adventist young adults, and him, this older Sikh man, probably in his 60s, we went to lunch, sat down for lunch. Sat down, I brought the Adventist doctor by because... Sikhs and Hindus and Indians especially respect the medical field. So I brought the doctor by local. I'm like, hey, he's one of our elders. I'm like, hey, go talk to him, Ed. And Ed sat down and just, you know, did the best he could. But I sat down with this Sikh man, and I began to just communicate. And I really feel that God gave me some understanding and communication with him. I said, how do you know these two guys? And he said, I was walking by the church, and they had a children's program. And so I decided to bring my grandchild. I brought my grandchild they came rushing to me. He's like, I don't know what they've been saying to me for two months, but we're friends. He said, he said this. They invited me to lunch, and we had lunch. He said, they took us out to lunch. We had lunch. He said, I invited them to my house for lunch. And I was looking at these two guys, and they're just smiling, and they didn't understand anything that was going on. And I was like, man, the Lord can use anybody here, right? And this is what happened. He then tells me, he's like, we went to my house for lunch. My wife was awkward about the whole thing, bringing these Christians to the house. He said, right before we were about to eat, he said they wanted to pray. So we stopped what we were doing, and they prayed to Jesus. And he said, my wife had a startled look on her face when the prayer was done. And I went into the kitchen because she walked away awkwardly. And I said, what's going on? And she said this, that during the prayer she looked up and she said she saw Jesus standing behind the two men. Now you say, was that biblical? Well, in the Gospel of Luke, it tells us in Luke 24 that Jesus was known to them when? In the breaking of bread. And then you know what he tells me? He said, I have found nothing in Sikhism. I want to understand what these men understand. I mean, here are two guys who can't even speak Punjabi. And the whole time they're just smiling and like, give me a thumbs up. And I'm like, <laughs> like oh, this is strange. But you know what they did? They were hospitable to this man. And this man felt like he was home in a world where he felt like a foreigner. Are you tracking with me on this? You've got to do this. And when you give that Abrahamic hospitality, you will see. You're not just serving men. Angels are present to you. Amen? And he set up altars of prayer everywhere he went. He was willing to pray for anybody, anywhere. And as people began to recognize God was answering prayers, 
they knew the Lord was with him. Amen? And this is important for us to understand. By the way, this is one of my favorite pictures. I hope to get this framed one day in my house. It is the God of all nations. Amen? Of every tribe, culture, people group. That is the three angels' message. That is what makes us up. This is woven into the fabric of Christ's robes of righteousness. For God so loved the what? The world. He is a God that works with every person, everywhere, and he offers to them light. And they have to respond. For if they do not respond to the light, then they can be lost. But he gives to every man opportunity based upon that light, whether it's great light, little light, it's always in the end enough light. Amen? So what do we understand? We understand God is a God who cares and loves. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer, and then we'll take a few minutes to do a Q&A, and then we're done in about five, six minutes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just thank you so much again for being with us and reminding us you're a God who is far greater and bigger than we understand. And thank you, Lord, that even when we may fail in our witness for others, you do not fail. Thank you, you are the light that lights every man's world. Please continue to be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we've got a few minutes for questions. Uh, if we can, in the questions, I think there's a mic around here, somewhere around here. I don't know who the AV guy is. They left us without a babysitter in here. All right, so you have a question. Please avoid the preamble. Just get straight to the question. Uh, we'll start with you with your hand raised. What was that? Say a little louder. Sorry, it was the Incan, not Incas, not the Mayans. Yeah, check out the book called Eternity in Their Hearts. It is probably one of the best books that you could ever get about the big picture of God. And uh, I think it's very consistent with what we understand as Seventh-day Adventists. Yes? Sure. I think that's a, a reference to the light that God gives, that it's very particular. Um, and for some, we may understand that very clearly as, you know, given understanding of God's word and scripture. We can see what this road looks like. But I think that, that light still manifests itself uh, in different places, but it's still a road for everyone to take. And it's a narrow road. And even the, 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 the man who is, not a, uh, who is not a Christian, a Hindu and Sikh, who has no Christian ever reach him... The light that God gives to him is still a narrow path, and he's going to have to step out in that path. And it's going to cause him potentially to have to, you know, lose, uh, lose out. He will have to carry a cross in some way during that time. So I wish we had a mic. Are there any AV people here? Oh, there we go, right there. Thank you. All right, question. Yeah. Can God reject a prayer? You know, um, can you add a little bit more context to that, like a, maybe a, a situation? Sure. You know, I would say this, that um, there have been many times I have not been sincere in my prayers, and I thank God in his mercy, he still answered those prayers. I think God deals with people, not so much upon a particular act, 
but sort of the direction and the trajectory of where they're going. Like when you read Steps to Christ, she says, men are not so much lost for a single act here and there, but where the direction is. And I think in regards to prayer and stuff, I think there are times that God is saying, hey, you need to, you need to try a little harder on your prayer right now. You know? And there are times that God convicts me, and he's like, hey, uh, I need you to start claiming some promises. I need you to fast right here. I need, and there are times where God says, I need you to call me up. When it comes to prayer, we also understand from the book of Daniel, there's another spiritual realm that God is dealing with, where he's also dealing with opposition to answers to those prayers, i.e. fallen angels. So there are so many dynamics, and there's a science to this. So in some sense, I wouldn't say God rejects prayers, especially from the believer, but what I do think is that he refines their motives, why they're praying, and he calls them up higher and greater in that prayer experience many times. So, yes, we have Mike. Yes, question. Question, thank you so much. I am from India. Son, but of India. Now give me the hug, brother. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a coal porter here, uh, working in this area, visiting many Hindus and Muslims. Just briefly, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached unto all nations for a witness, then the end will come. Can you share us with us how do you approach? We have a Bible studies for Christians, sure. but Muslims or Hindus, you sure. know, a simple way to share excellent, the gospel. Excellent question. Here's what I would say. If you have the book, Acts of the Apostle, read the chapter called Preaching Among the Heathen. She actually describes two ways that people... By the way, the word Gentile is a reference for someone who's not a Jew. The word heathen is for someone who's a reference who's not a Christian. Those terms can be used interchangeably sometimes. Uh, and today's world, sometimes the word heathen has associations that can be derogatory, but we're using it based upon sort of a biblical context. Okay, done with that preamble. So what I'm trying to say is this. In the book of Acts of the Apostle, in the chapter called Preaching Among the Heathen, actually, Ellen White actually talks about two ways that the heathen can understand God. She says, number one, when you refer to God's creative glory. And how do you understand this? When you actually read the, the book of Acts, you see when Paul is preaching among the heathen, he himself will make references using the Sabbath commandment. He will borrow from Sabbath language to bring out the bigness of God, the creation of God, or the creative power of God. God is the God who created this world and this universe. So when I'm studying with someone who is not a Christian or has no Christian background, I will start with Genesis chapter 1, and I will start with this big picture of God who loves, who creates, and he hears the prayers of people. The second thing Ellen White points to in that chapter, she says this, Paul and Silas were effective among the heathens because they trained new converts effectively. She says that when they would leave an area, sometimes the, the church would fall apart. But she says, not in the case of Paul and Silas, they effectively trained new converts. In other words, they did the work of discipleship very thoroughly. So as you're working with somebody, as they're growing in faith, uh, it's important to understand the role of discipleship. Now, I gave you sort of a distilled, very quick answer to that, but at least that's a starting point, I would say, is check out that chapter. When I checked out that chapter, it began to actually guide the way I did Bible studies. Instead of doing, like, the traditional Amazing Facts Bible study, hey, start with Daniel chapter 2, hey, start with the Great Controversy, I actually started with the creation story found in Genesis chapter 1, and then I began to move from the big picture of God to where God is coming close and closer and closer to humanity went to John's Gospels because John's Gospel actually was made for people who were heathen or Gentiles. And we see many references to that. So John's Gospel, I think, is really, really important in when you're doing Bible studies with people who don't have a Christian background. All right, next question. I uh, really appreciate your saying God listens more to Muslim prayers than, I mean, Muslims than to Muslim prayers. And the prayers of a Muslim, the, of the heartfelt prayers of a sincere God-fearing Muslim 
more than just a Muslim prayer. Great, yeah. yeah. That, and also, like, the problem with being a universalist. So, how about then, how do you approach the question of, then why does it matter being a Christian? Sure. Like, why does being a Christian matter, sure. right? Yeah. yeah. I think the, uh, the, the biggest thing we can understand is this. The, like, I remember I was studying, uh, there was a Sikh man who was a chiropractor. He was adjusting my neck. Um, and he, he asked what I did for a living. I said, well, I was a pastor. I was pastoring at that time. And I said, well, I'm pastoring. And he became silent. And then at the end of it, he just said, hey, I believe all religions lead to the same path. You know, they're all the same God, same destination. And then I said to him afterwards, and I really believe the Spirit gave me wisdom. I said, I noticed he said something. He said, what? He said, at the core of it. It. He's like, yeah. And I said, it's not about an it. It's about a who. I said, what life is about is about discovering who he is, the one who existed before all of this and has created us for a grand purpose. He looked right at me. And you know what he said to me right afterwards? He said, can you pray for me? And I think the, it's important because that's reflective upon us as Christians. The greatest accolade that we can have as humans is to know God. Amen. To know God and then to make him known. Um, and, and, and by the way, today's church talks more about heaven than they did in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. Do you know what their great reward was many times? Just living the life of a Christian. They understood something. They understood what it was like to walk with God each and every day, to have the creator of the universe commune with you, to, to know that you're doing his will. And, and, and that's why Paul's writing, like in 1 Thessalonians, he began to address certain issues about the second coming so that they would not be left without the greater hope of those whose lives were cut short. So, any other questions? Take a few more questions. Hi. Yes, I can't see you right now. Yes. Hi. Wait, wait well, hold on a second. How much time do we have left? How much time do we have left? Okay. Sorry. We'll do one more question. Um, okay, so I think a lot of people approach uh, people from any other different religion as, you know, doing ministry is kind of like bringing them out of the pits of hell. Should our perspective change in any way when we are approach approaching other cultures, other religions? Uh, with the information you've shared today? Sure. I would start with, uh, and, and this is really important, I, would, I take the same stance with other people groups as well, even Adventists or non, you know, with people who are Christian, whatever. I start with where they're at and what do I understand about them. And the first place I like to start with, depending upon where they're at, let's say we're talking with someone that has just completely a, uh, let's say a Sikh background or a Hindu background. I will start with Genesis chapter 1. I will first talk about God's greatness, and then I will begin to dial down the picture to God being a God of love and then a God of accountability. And I will start heading in that path, in that direction, because we're reshaping a picture of God for them. And we'll be surprised the spirit of it is ahead of us on many times. There are times where I'm just like, uh, this is further down the line, and God will say, now I want you to give it now. And I will give it right then and there. And I realized the spirit was already working on this issue well before I got there. So... All right, thank you so much. Next presentation is Adam, Eve, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, and Rachel, Ruth, and Boaz. Who has the better love story? This message was recorded at the GYC conference by many or by few in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to challenge and inspire young people to take a sacrificial initiative for Christ. To download other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.